For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Should companies that use animals as mascots help pay for the conservation of those species? If your film writer, Christopher Nelius, The answer is yes. Nelius, an Australian director known mostly for a 2020 film called Girls Can't Surf, says he was watching TV recently when a phone company advertisement appeared on the screen. The ad featured a realistic animated family of elephants that exuded feelings of warmth and homeliness. This didn't sit right with Nelius, according to an environmental media outlet called Encia, given that wild populations of elephants are dwindling. It seemed distasteful to use their images for profit, and to do so without any benefits to the elephants. Brad Pitt gets money whenever his image is used, and LeBron James became a billionaire, largely based on selling his image to advertisers. It seems like elephants, polar bears, and other famous mascots are getting gypped. So, Nelius' production company joined several other companies and the United Nations in launching a new initiative called the Lion's Share Fund. I'll let the dulcet tones of Sir David Attenborough explain more. Backed by the United Nations Development Programme and foundation partner Mars Incorporated, the Lion's Share encourages brands and organisations using images of animals in their marketing to donate 0.5% of their media spend to the Lion's Share Trust. Meaning, every time an animal is featured in an ad, that brand will make a contribution. The money that companies donate will be distributed across the world to save species from extinction, preserve habitat, and, quote, look out for animal welfare. Attenborough explains that if the top 10 advertisers in the world sign up, it would provide an annual donation of $47 million. 
the lion's share hopes to raise $100 million per year, though they're reportedly quite a ways from that goal. There is some evidence that plastering images of endangered species on televisions and billboards obscures the conservation status of those species. A 2018 study from the Swedish university found that only about half of adults, children, and university students could identify lions, tigers, elephants, giraffes, and several other threatened animals as endangered. Which, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, is a great opportunity to update that old children's toy. You remember the circular thing where you pull the string and there's an arrow in the middle and it spins around and points to one of the animals on the circle? And a voice is like, but you know, in this version, it would be the Asian elephant says, there's only 52,000 of us left on the planet due largely to loss of habitat. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature lists us as endangered. Anyway, you get the idea, right? It's fun and informative. So, if you're used to seeing polar bears on television, it might make you think the population is doing better than it is. At the same time, I wonder how many fewer people would care about polar bears if they didn't see that fuzzy family selling Coca-Cola products every Christmas. So what do you think? Should Kellogg's donate to tiger conservation every time it prints a box of Frosted Flakes? Should Twitter send money to conserve mountain bluebird habitat? Or Disney donate to the Humane Society to stop experiments on mice or, you know, whatever the heck Goofy is? <laughs> this week, we've got recaps and updates, snort report, Colorado wolves, New Jersey bears, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And before that, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. As the old saying goes, if you don't have to celebrate Christmas, I hope you celebrate something, even if it's just an excuse to be around friends and eat good food. Food that you gathered from a productive hunting season. 191 episodes. 191 weeks have been reviewed. Thank you for being here, listening in, and calling your elected officials. I wish you the very best. I just returned from Kansas. If you recall, my last trip to Kansas was a real bummer. Almost hit 80 degrees this same week last year. The waterfowl laid out a touch all week, rafted up in the middle of large reservoirs, barely flying. It was a tough trip. This year, I was not super excited to be going back to Kansas, but I was hoping for redemption. If not redemption... At least a few more birds for old Snorticus to retrieve. But this year, which you'll be able to see in a future YouTube episode, was, well, pretty darn daunting. To fill you in on a little background, we had previously obtained filming permission from the state of Kansas to document the hunt days on state wildlife areas, but that permission was rescinded just prior to the hunt, leaving us only Corps of Engineer ground on a handful of reservoirs. Very low water year in Kansas, so the reservoirs were really low, meaning that there was no water in areas that had been marshes. And marshy areas contained the food for dabbling ducks. So the birds that were using these lakes were just resting and not all that interested in being near the shores or, you know, sitting in ducky-looking areas. We were in uh, what I would consider to be a highly populated area of eastern Kansas, and we did not have permission to film anywhere else. 
so we were stuck. On top of this, we could hardly locate any birds other than seagulls at all. Snort was not pleased after our first day of hunting, in which we bagged only two mallards. But on that day, we noticed something. Medium to large groups of mallards starting about midday would just drop out of the sky and fly the center of the big lake. Basically untouchable birds, far out of sight of our very ducky-looking spread located in a really cool little offshoot finger of the lake, which was full of old tree stumps littered with moss-covered jig heads and crankbaits. After another evening of scouting, burning gas that turned up no birds, even worse, no bird hunters on any of the half-dozen locations we checked, we decided to try and persuade the seemingly unpersuadable high flyers on the same lake. They were the only game in town, after all. In order to do this, we got up real early so we could build a blind way out on this wind-blasted, exposed point where no duck would want to sit. The strategy was to make our decoy spread look as large and flashy as possible and see if we could turn a few beaks in our direction. Well, long story short, after sticking the boat in an ice-covered mud flat, then getting the boat out by pushing it through the mud for about 40 minutes, we ran out of gas, barely had enough in the spare tank to get us to where we wanted to go. We got set up late in the morning, then we screamed and wailed on our duck calls, and old Snort started picking up some belly-up birds. I made Snort a spot high behind the blind where she could see everything. She never broke, meaning she only picked up birds after I gave her the command to do so. That dog has an amazing memory for where birds land. It was very efficient. It was awesome. However, she did not bring me a single bird. She just trucked right past me, back up to her place, dropped them in a tidy pile, then waited for the next command. So, as per usual, we got some work to do. The rest of this story you'll see on the Meat Eater YouTube channel at some point in the future, but I'll tell you this. We were there a total of six days. We scouted our spots every one of those days. If we hunted in the morning, we scouted in the evening. We ended up hunting three days in a row. The first day, my hunting partner, Tyler, who happens to work for Weatherby, came home with two mallards. Me, no birds. The second day, eight mallards, four birds apiece. The third day, eight mallards, five for Tyler, three for me, plus two geese for me, and one goose for him. I'll tell you, we had opportunities, two out of the three days, to limit on mallards. We got blasted by the wind on that nasty point. We called so much, we blew ourselves hoarse putting as much air into the calls as possible, being more obnoxious than I would have previously considered possible, especially on a late-season hunt a lot further south in the flyway than my home state, meaning these birds have been shot at plenty. And until that ad hoc plan started to work on that second hunt day, I would have killed to be able to get out of there at least a couple hours in a different direction. But we stayed, we grinded it out, we tried new things and figured it out. And, as a result, Snorticus retrieved a lot more birds than she did the year before in Kansas. Here's the last takeaway for you. Never heard another shotgun, other than our own, the entire time. For good reason, right? We never saw birds flying, found very few birds on the water that we hunted or any other water. It was a dismal situation. 
But as it turns out, there were birds there. During the entire six days, we only saw one other group of hunters that entire time. It's crazy. And that, my listening friends, is my Christmas wish to all of you. Big fat mallards on your home waters and to have them all to yourselves. Of course, as loyal as Snort is, she really doesn't care who does the shooting. She just wants the retrieves. We'll see if we can get that bird in hand on the next one. (coughs) Moving on to the updates desk. You may remember back in episode 186 when I told you about a proposed hydroelectric plant in Colorado's Uniweep Canyon. This plant would have destroyed the canyon's unique geological structure, not to mention displaced residents from their homes and disrupted local wildlife. XL Energy, the company that proposed the project, has decided to abandon its plans, citing multiple concerns. Over in Wyoming, our corner crossing case that we've been keeping an eye on, and deservedly so, has an interesting update. Backcountry hunters and anglers filed an amicus brief claiming that the U.S. Supreme Court has already established that corner crossing from one piece of public land to another is legal. First, an amicus brief is not part of the case proper, The official Latin name is Amicus Curiae, which means friend of the court. Basically, it's a document a group or an individual submits that is supposed to help the court make a more informed decision. It offers expertise or insight that is a bearing on the case, but it isn't submitted by one of the parties directly involved. Backcountry hunters and anglers argue that no less than two decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted the 1885 Unlawful Enclosures Act in a way that allows corner crossing. In one case, the court sided with the public against an irrigation developer who built a fence that blocked access to about 20,000 acres of public land. In another, the court ruled that fences put up inches inside private land that blocked public land in that checkerboard fashion was also unlawful. Backcountry hunters and anglers argue that if the highest court in the land interpreted the Enclosures Act in favor of the public, the judge in this most recent case should as well. Whether he will or not is unclear, but BHA's amicus brief presents a pretty dang good argument in favor of the public land hunters in the case. Also by way of update, I wanted to address a concern a listener had about the Illinois Water Access Bill we covered in episode 188. This bill is being supported by public land advocacy groups because it would redefine the legal term, quote, navigable, to allow public access on smaller rivers and streams that are currently off limits in the state of Illinois. This listener wrote in to voice concerns I hear from landowners all the time. This individual is a hunter, angler, and conservationist, but his family owns land in Illinois that has a river running through it. His family has allowed people to float down the river even though they could have blocked it off and they've been happy to do so. But in the last five to ten years, he says traffic has increased fourfold and they've had to deal with people hunting without permission, building campfires, cutting down trees, and damaging crops. I totally understand why he's hesitant about a bill that will increase traffic even more and it highlights why it's so important to respect landowners and their property. The vast majority of landowners don't mind hunters and anglers passing through, whether on a river or forest service road. If they never had a bad experience with vandals and poachers, how much easier would it be to get these access bills passed? A lot easier, more than likely. 
But since some folks don't know how to act, whether by ignorance or malice or laziness, it could be extremely difficult to get this Illinois bill across the finish line, which is a long-winded way of saying you can do a lot by not trespassing on private property. You can do a lot for access by picking up trash, especially when it's not yours. You're not doing yourselves or the hunting community any favors if you don't. You're just making it less likely that we'll be able to turn to landowners when we want to expand access in the future. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Moving on to the Colorado Wolf Desk. Colorado Parks and Wildlife made a huge splash this month when they unveiled their long-awaited wolf management plan. They've been working on this reintroduction plan since Colorado voters in 2020 approved Proposition 114. This proposition directed Parks and Wildlife to develop a plan to, quote, recover and maintain a viable, self-sustaining wolf population in Colorado. It took them nearly two years, but the 293-page report is now open to public scrutiny. And let me tell you, there's plenty of scrutiny to go around. If you live in Colorado, 
I'd encourage you to read as much of the report as you can. There will be lots of opportunities to send your thoughts to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and those comments will be more impactful if you've actually read the thing you're talking about. Imagine that. But if you don't have time to read the report, which again is the length of a good-sized novel, here's a couple of highlights. The plan right now is to release 30 to 50 wolves over the next three to five years. Ideally, these wolves will come from Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, but the agency is also open to wolves from Washington and Oregon. All wolves will be released at least 60 miles from the state border to reduce the possibility that these wolves will move off into Utah, Wyoming, or New Mexico. Because, you know, the worst thing is if wild animals fail to respect our imaginary state boundaries. Anyway, along with that 60-mile limitation, state statute also requires that wolves be released only west of the Continental Divide. If you're fuzzy on your square state geography, the Continental Divide runs north to south and cuts off the western one-third of the state. So, contrary to what the folks in Denver were no doubt hoping when they voted for this, most of the state is unlikely to see wolves wandering around anytime soon. If next year's release goes through, it will likely be in the northwestern part of Colorado along the Interstate 70 corridor between Vail and Glenwood Springs. Ultimately, the goal is to have 150 wolves for two successive years or 200 wolves for any length of time. At that point, wolves will be delisted from the state's list of endangered species and the state will consider reclassifying them as a game species. The report dedicates two chapters and about 10 pages to mitigating conflict between wolves and livestock, ungulates, pets, and humans. This was one of the biggest concerns Coloradans had, and the report goes into some detail outlining what will and what will not be allowed in certain types of situations. As a general rule, non-lethal control and mitigation strategies are encouraged, while lethal controls are to be used only as a means of last resort. The agency considers lethal control as an important tool in its tool belt, but it's not meant to be a long-term solution. For example, while livestock owners will be allowed to apply for a permit to kill a wolf, they may only do so if they observe a wolf in the act of, quote, biting, wounding, grasping, or killing livestock or working dogs. They must report the kill within 24 hours, and they must present a preponderance of evidence that the kill was justified. If they do lose livestock to wolves, the state will offer compensation of 100% of the fair market value of the livestock. Hunters are worried how placing wolves on the landscape will affect deer and elk numbers. The report acknowledges that hunting is an important economic driver in rural communities and acknowledges that their task is to balance maintaining hunting opportunities with a viable wolf population. They admit that there is a potential for wolves to reduce elk numbers in a particular area, you know, because uh, wolves don't eat plants. But they argue, as I've said before on this show, that it's really hard to tease out the effect of wolves from other factors like weather and habitat. If ungulate populations are below objectives in a particular region, the report says that lethal control may be allowed. However, these controls will not be allowed until phase three of the plan when there are at least 150 wolves in the state for two successive years. They will also require empirical data that supports the conclusion that wolves are, quote, a principal cause in affected ungulate populations. Given how hard finding this data can be, it's unclear how this bar will ever be met. And remember, according to the International Wolf Center, wolves require at least... 3.7 pounds of meat per day 
for minimum maintenance. Reproducing and growing wolves may need two to three times this much. Wolves don't eat every day in the wild, so, you know, you gotta average that out. They can consume, this is an estimate, about 10 pounds of meat per day when they're in the uh, gorging on meat phase. Safe to say, again, they're not a threat to Colorado's grass. In fact, there's probably going to be more of it. Now, here's something that hits close to home. If a wolf is attacking a pet or hunting dog, which apparently does not get covered under working dog, which is absolutely bizarre, lethal control will not be allowed in any phase of the plan. At this point, you might be wondering, okay, what about the current wolf population in Colorado? The report lists 10 documented sightings of wolves in the state, including two last year. One of those sightings included a male and a female with six puppies, which indicates that these aren't just roving males searching for a mate. This year, local Colorado media reported that wolves are suspected in multiple livestock killings, and wildlife officers confirmed that the evidence indicates as much. These killings occurred in the northwestern portion of the state, only about 60 miles as the crow flies from where the first wolves will be reintroduced. In other words, Colorado already has wolves. If it doesn't have quite as many as voters want, it will soon. But the state is moving forward with its reintroduction plan, thanks to something we talk about on the show all the time. Ballot box biology. Same stuff that got, um, you know, mushrooms and weed legal in Colorado. Colorado voters wanted wolves in their state, which I think is totally fine, but they voted for a proposition that took the decision out of the hands of biologists and forced them to spend money and time on a project that's already happening naturally. Naturally. That's kind of a funny word when you think about it. Kind of sounds like nature. Like, you know, nature put wolves in the state, but what does nature know? We'll do it ourselves, and we'll do it on our own timeline. Of course, no amount of wolves is enough for our friends at the Humane Society. They released a statement slamming Colorado's wolf plan as falling short of its statutory mandate. Instead of aiming for 150 to 200 wolves, they want to see 750 wolves spread across a larger portion of the state. Don't worry, Humane Society. You'll see it. Just wait. If you'd like to weigh in, the process is easy. The state has released an online form where residents can submit comments, and you can find that form through the Google machine or... We'll make it easier for you at themeateater.com forward slash cal. In addition, Colorado Parks and Wildlife will be holding in-person comment sessions in five cities throughout the state from January 19th to February 22nd. Online comments will be accepted through February 22, 2023. Moving on to the crime desk. A poaching ring, known as the E-Bite Crew, was arrested and charged with multiple wildlife crimes. According to local news outlets, six people are in custody and another is on the lam for what officials say was a coordinated operation that involved fake hunting licenses, dead bears, and a local grocery store. The group first caught the attention of law enforcement when a game warden stopped them in the Los Padres National Forest. They were all riding e-bikes, which have become popular among hunters because they're silent and are a relatively inexpensive replacement for a conventional motorcycle. One of the men identified themselves as the e-bike crew from Oxnard. And with that, another legendary crime syndicate was born. You know, it goes the Italian mafia, the Mexican drug cartels, and the e-bike crew from Oxnard. I'd say that's a fair top three. Anyway, 
Game wardens received multiple complaints about the group over the next year or so. They were allegedly seen killing animals in wildlife sanctuaries and restricted areas such as oil fields, some of which was confirmed with surveillance footage. One thing led to another, and wardens eventually worked out that these so-called hunters had been working with a grocery store called Lizette's Market to reprint hunting tags. The guy who ran the market was reprinting licenses to allow the e-bike crew to hunt more animals than was legally allowed. During the time that the alleged crimes took place, no licensed dealer in the entire state of California had more reprinted tickets than Lizette's Market. In total, 64 tags were found to have been reprinted and more than 120 tags were never reported. When officials searched the homes of the e-bike crew, they recovered dozens of trophy antlers and animal skulls that were believed to have been harvested illegally. They also found freezers full of meat and several members of the crew admitted to exchanging and bartering animal parts. In their public statement, Fish and Wildlife officials said, quote, the execution of this scheme has resulted in a significant loss to wildlife resources within the county, the deprivation of lawful hunting opportunity for law-abiding citizens, and the illegal commercialization of native wildlife for personal gain or profit. The men have been hit with 21 charges including forgery, conspiracy, receiving of stolen property, animal cruelty, and possession of an untagged bear. Their bail has been set for $200,000, and one of the men, Walfrey Lopez y Lopez has not yet been located. If you know anything about his whereabouts, get in touch with the Ventura County District Attorney's Office. Moving on to New Jersey. We'll end today's episode with a call to action. The New Jersey black bear hunt received national attention earlier this month after Governor Phil Murphy went back on his campaign promise and reinstated the black bear hunt. After being briefly delayed by a lawsuit from animal rights groups, the hunt was extended by an additional four days after hunters failed to meet the state's harvest goals. This isn't surprising, considering the fact that the hunt was announced with only two weeks' notice after not taking place for the last two years. The hunt is likely over by the time you're hearing this, but the fight over bear hunting in New Jersey is anything but. The state has opened a survey on its bear management policies, and it's asking New Jersey residents to weigh in. The survey asks for feedback on the overall policy as well as specific aspects of the hunt. For example, the new regulations prohibit hunting within 300 feet of a baited area, taking cubs less than 75 pounds, and taking adult bears accompanying cubs less than 75 pounds. In addition to this survey, which you can find by going to themeateater.com forward slash cal, the New Jersey Fish and Game Council is holding a public hearing on January 18th to discuss these policies. The New Jersey chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is asking hunters to pack the hearing. Anti-hunting groups have historically outnumbered hunters at these meetings, but let's make sure that doesn't happen this time around. The meeting will take place in Trenton on January 18th, and I'd encourage any and all New Jersey hunters to attend. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to write in to ASKCAL, that's AskCal, at TheMeatEater.com, And if you have, you know, let's say a pile of Visa check cards from your Christmas stocking, or, you know, maybe you're uh, exchanging some presents down at the pawn shop for some cash, check out www.steeldealers.com to find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They'll get you set up with a fire-breathing chainsaw capable of putting up cords of wood faster than you can say Jiminy Christmas, or a clean, quiet, battery-operated saw, which you can run while listening to Nat King Cole or your favorite e-book. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. 